Welcome to Dark Adaptation, and thank you for joining our mini-series, Missing, Murdered, Mysterious, where we highlight unsolved cases of mysterious deaths and missing people with a focus on BIPOC in North America. BIPOC is an acronym for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. Thousands of people are reported missing each year. Two of those people are Maisie Ojik and Shannon Alexander. And the family is still waiting for some answers. We've learned a Canadian woman is missing. Family says they have done all that was in their hands to find their loved one. I just want him to make it home to us. Pleading for help from the public to find their family member. The car was empty, the motor still running. The driver's side door was open. Shannon Alexander's family is a lot more private than Maisie Ojik's family, as Shannon's disappearance has been incredibly difficult on them, and it's hard for them to speak publicly about it. A lot of the information for this episode, and the manner in which it's told, is from Maisie's family's perspective, which is not intended to diminish Shannon's part in this case or glance over the fact that two young women are missing. Shannon Alexander was born on March 29, 1991, and is a bright, talented, and determined young woman. She was a cadet and loved being in a leadership role, which might have stemmed from the fact that those around her said she had a hard life growing up. She fought to be happy and do things that she loved. She had dreams of one day growing up and becoming a nurse. Macy Ojik was born on November 6, 1991, and has been described as free-spirited, bright, and intelligent. She was close to her family and loved her siblings deeply. She went fishing and swimming with them and even taught her little brother how to read. She was very artistic, always drawing and creating, and as she moved into her teenage years, she was focused on discovering herself, finding her identity as both an Indigenous person and a young woman. 16-year-old Macy and 17-year-old Shannon met around March of 2008 and quickly became close friends. Lori called them kindred spirits. If they fought, they immediately made up, and the two girls spent nearly every moment of their free time together. They were described as average teenage girls, they went to high school, gossiped about boys, and socialized at the popular local hangouts. Macy lived with her grandmother, and every Saturday morning she would mow the lawn for some money. Macy's mother, Lori, stopped by and saw Macy mowing the lawn on Friday, September 5th, 2008, with Shannon hanging around while Macy worked. Lori asked Macy why she was mowing the lawn a day early, and Macy told her she was getting it out of the way to make some money before she headed over to Shannon's place for the weekend. Shannon lived in an apartment with her father, Brian Alexander, in Manawaki, Quebec, which is only a couple kilometers away from where Macy lived in Kitagon Zibi. Brian was going to Ottawa, 135 kilometers south, to help his son paint so the girls would have the apartment to themselves. Laurie asked the girls what they would be doing that weekend, and they said that they were going to go to a school dance at the Manawaki Arena that night. Laurie hugged and kissed Maisie, and the two girls were off. They attended the dance for a bit before their other friends, who were also at the dance, said they saw the girls leave the arena. It's believed they went to a local hangout, which was a park near Polyvalenti High School, but they left after Shannon argued with a guy who was also at the park. The next day, Saturday, September 6th, 
Shannon walked Brian, her father, to a bus stop in Manawaki while Shannon slept on the couch. Sadly, this was the last time anyone saw Macy and Shannon. When Saturday passed with no word from Macy, her family wasn't too concerned because they knew the girls were spending the day together and they might have been busy. When Sunday rolled around, Macy's grandmother was getting concerned because Macy hadn't contacted anyone since Friday, which was unusual. She was sure to keep someone updated on her whereabouts. Her grandmother couldn't get a hold of her and went to Shannon's apartment to check on the girls. After repeatedly knocking and no one coming to answer, the family became really worried, and Macy's mother and grandmother started calling everyone they knew to see if anyone had heard from the girls. Brian returned to the apartment, likely on Sunday, and noticed the girls weren't there, which was weird because they had left behind their backpacks and purses, which held their wallets that had money and their IDs. Brian also noticed his daughter, Shannon, had left her medication behind. Neither girl was in trouble with the law. They didn't lead high-risk lifestyles. So when they vanished without a trace from the apartment, it was a shock to everyone who knew them. Macy's family contacted the Kitagon Zibi police, also known as the Anishinaabek police, on Monday, September 8th to report Macy missing but they were told they had to wait 24 hours, so she wasn't officially reported missing until Tuesday, September 9th, 2008. When the police report was made, Macy's family was told that Macy was missing from Manawaki, and therefore it was Quebec's jurisdiction, not First Nations. Even though they claimed it wasn't their jurisdiction, they held on to the police report without forwarding it on to Sorete de Quebec Provincial Police Force, or SQ for short, they said this was because Macy lived in Kitagon ZB. Since Shannon lived in Manawaki, she was reported missing to SQ, and this was on September 10th, 2008. So, two separate entities were now separately handling the cases of two young women who more than likely went missing together. Lori firmly believes SQ should have been handling both cases from the start since the girls went missing from their jurisdiction. Lori said she believes the investigation into Macy's disappearance was mishandled by both police forces from the start. She said the girls were immediately labeled as runaways, and the apartment that Brian and Shannon were living in at the time wasn't even searched for evidence or clues to their whereabouts. There was also no Amber Alert issued and no Bolo sent out. She added she never received a case file number, and in the first couple of days of the girls' disappearance, the police never notified the press or media about the disappearances. The SQ and Anishinaabek police weren't conducting or helping with any searches of the missing girls, so the families and other volunteers had to start searching on their own and pulling together their own resources. These efforts were spearheaded by Lori and Macy's aunt, Maria. Maria ended up building a website to raise awareness for the girls' disappearance. She said she wanted a space for people to visit, to comment their thoughts, share information and theories, and to raise money for a reward. A week after they vanished, Macy's family went to Kitakon ZB chief Gilbert White Duck for help, and he and the council helped by reaching out to various media outlets to arrange for a news conference. Macy's family recalls that it was depressing, to say the least. 
with only the Manawaki paper and APTN showing up. APTN stands for Aboriginal People's Television Network, which is a Canadian TV channel. After a month, the Anishinaabeg police notified the public that the girls were still missing, but by this point, the girls' families felt it was too late and valuable evidence was lost. Meanwhile, Maria was contacting anyone she could think of, including multiple police forces, Missing Children's Society of Canada, and even the volunteer organization Search and Rescue Global One, which I'm going to call SRG1 for short. SRG1 said they would help, but since they would be searching First Nation territory, they needed approval from the chief and council, who gladly invited the organization into the community. By this point, it was December, and the girls had been missing for a few months, but SRG1 began their investigation, sifting through the facts of the case. Typically, SRG1 works closely with the police and the available facts and evidence, but as they put it, quote, In this particular case, the police were less present, so we didn't have access to some of the investigative materials that the police forces would have been using, end quote. Even though it was December and very snowy with harsh weather conditions, that didn't stop SRG1 and the family from conducting their first outdoor search. The snow was up to their knees, making it impossible to locate any evidence or sign of the girls, so the decision was ultimately made to hold off on searching again until the spring. In May 2009, another search was conducted this time with a bus full of volunteers coming to help from as far away as Ottawa. SRG1 recalls that they have never seen greater community support and engagement than the search conducted for Macy and Shannon in Kittigan ZB. And even though no one found anything of use to the investigation, Chief Gilbert White Duck says it taught the community how to work together and brought everyone closer together, both inside Kittigan ZB and outside as they saw how many people came in from the surrounding areas, taking time off from work to help with the search efforts. That same year, 2009, the SQ took over the case and Lori said she had a good relationship with the lead investigator, to the point the detective has even given her his personal cell phone number. Lori said, quote, from the very beginning, he calls me, even if he knows nothing, it's just reassurance that she's not forgotten, and that makes a world of difference. The Ontario Provincial Police joined efforts with the Anishinaabeg Police and the SQ in June 2009, as a result of information received that Macy and Shannon may have been seen in the Ottawa and Kingston areas of Ontario. But sadly, this yielded nothing for the investigation. In the early days, reports like this were common. Tips poured in about the girls being seen in Toronto, Montreal, and even local provincial parks and conservation areas. There was even a rumor the girls were in Verendry Park in Quebec, which the family has independently searched five or six times. This was a monumental task, as this park is huge and typically used for hunting. In July 2017, There was renewed hope for Macy and Shannon's families when the SQ received a tip from a community member who said they knew what happened to the girls. The person was in a mental health institution at the time they came forward with this tip, 
and the SQ found it substantial enough to go to Kitagon ZB to interview nearly 20 people and conduct a search of Pito Big Creek and the surrounding area. Divers from SQ searched the creek for two days straight and dug up various areas of the creek bed because the community members said they were buried along the shore. Unfortunately, these searches yielded nothing, and SQ learned that construction on the nearby Manawaki Speedway had disturbed the creek's shoreline in the years since Macy and Shannon's disappearance, potentially compromising evidence that may have once been there. Despite the fact that these searches and interviews didn't lead to any breaks in the case, the SQ say the investigation will continue for as long as it can. When it comes to the fate of Macy Ojik and Shannon Alexander, there are a few theories. The first theory is something we've all heard a million times when it comes to missing young people. The girls were runaways. As I mentioned earlier, the police immediately labeled Macy and Shannon as runaways and told the media as much. Lori believes the police saying this immediately tainted the public's view of their disappearances and people stopped looking and keeping vigilant. She said people assume kids run away from home for a, quote, reason, end quote, don't want to be found, and will, quote, come back when they are ready. This idea did a lot of damage to the direction of the investigation and to Macy's family, who do not believe they simply ran away. And the biggest sign this is not the case is, as we know, the girls' belongings were still in the apartment, belongings they needed if they were going to run away. In August 2011, the SQ said they were analyzing potential links the girls might have had to a sex criminal and local predator named Jacques Barbier. Jacques Barbier lived near Manawaki and taught martial arts, and he was even the assistant coach of the hockey team Macy's brother played on. Jacques was convicted of sex crimes against a teenager earlier that year, so 2011, and sent to prison, where he died by suicide in July. A prison guard recovered a suicide note, which was sent to SQ detectives. There were rumors about him leaving a confession in the letter, allegedly writing about harming the girls and burning their bodies. In August, the same month SQ announced they were seeing if Maisie and Shannon had any links to Jacques Barbier, Laurie received a disturbing letter that said Shannon and Maisie might have crossed paths with him. And at the time of the girl's disappearance, Jacques apparently came home with blood on him and smelling of smoke. Investigators have said there's no proof that Jacques burned their bodies, but Jacques is considered a suspect in Maisie and Shannon's disappearance. Many rumors and theories circulated around the communities that revolved around the girls being abducted and potentially trafficked. Some even said there was a ship loaded with girls taken from Ontario and Quebec that departed from Ontario. Maria, Macy's aunt, received the bulk of these tips through the website she set up and forwarded each one to police. According to the Native Women's Association of Canada, quote, While urban centers are considered as hubs for human trafficking in Canada, with some large cities more prone to the act than others, Indigenous women are also recruited into human trafficking while residing in their northern and rural communities, end quote. 
Manawaki and Kitagon Zibi are northern and rural communities. The SQ detective in charge of the case has told Lori that Macy's file may soon be shelved and therefore go cold if the information and subsequent investigating keeps leading to dead ends. Lori says her and her family go through an array of emotions, especially when tips come in that relate to where the girls are buried. It's a conflict of being fearful they will find the girls' bodies and also being fearful nothing will be found. At least if their bodies are found, there's closure that the girls are no longer alive and they can lay them to rest. But then there's no closure on what happened to them and why. She has also said she knows she may never receive answers as to what happened to Maisie and Shannon, but she firmly believes there are people out there who know what happened to her daughter and her daughter's best friend. And she is hopeful one day those people step forward. Former APTN reporter Nigel Newlove said, quote, I still keep an eye on this and hope that the different police services, the community, and anybody jumps on any lead to try and bring this to a closure because I personally believe if this had been two other girls, perhaps in a different town who were perhaps non-native, this might have went a different way. For years, communities all over North America have been drawing attention to the disproportionately high number of missing and murdered Indigenous women and the lack of investigatory work and resources that go into handling and solving their cases. Every year, a gathering is held on Parliament Hill in Ottawa, Ontario, to remember Sisters in Spirit, the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Laurie has attended those gatherings, and at one of them she said, quote, I have come here personally because this is a place I do not feel alone in my struggle, and I feel that I can make it. The hardest part to live with this is that we might never know what happened to our loved one. The government feels that they have done their job by giving money to organizations for research. They did research, but our questions still have not been answered. End quote. In that quote, Laurie is referring to Justin Trudeau's federal inquiry into why so many Indigenous women and girls go missing. A vigil is held every year to commemorate Maisie and Shannon, who are best friends, sisters, daughters, granddaughters, and they are loved and missed. By telling the story of women like Maisie Ojik and Shannon Alexander, we not only honor their memories, but we help raise awareness of their stories. Macy Ojik has brown eyes, brown hair, and is 5 foot 10 inches tall. Her left eyebrow, both nipples, and lower lip are pierced, and she has a scar above her right eyebrow. She went missing when she was 16 years old, so today she is 31 years old, turning 32 in November. Shannon Alexander has brown eyes, brown hair, and is 5 foot 9 inches tall. She has acne scarring on her face, a scar on her left knee, and pierced ears. She may have been wearing a silver necklace with a feather on it around her neck. She went missing when she was 17 years old, and today she is 32 years old. Both girls are missing from Manawaki, Quebec. If you have any information about the disappearance or whereabouts of Macy Ojik and Shannon Alexander, who have been missing from the Kitagon Zibi Anishinaabek Nation, and the Manawaki region in Quebec since Saturday, September 6th, 
or Sunday, September 7th, 2008, please contact the SQ at 1-800-659-4264. You can also contact the Director of Criminal Investigation Branch of the OPP at 1-888-310-1122 or 705-329-6111. If you want to remain anonymous, you can call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS. That's 1-800-222-8477, where you may be eligible to receive a cash reward of up to $2,000. To end this episode, I have a quote from Gilbert White Duck. Our women are our life givers. When we lose a woman, we lose future generations. So we have to honor women and take care of them. And that message is for all women. We have a collective responsibility. Thank you for listening to this episode of Missing, Murdered, Mysterious. Please share this episode so we can continue spreading Macy Ojik and Shannon Alexander's story. And hopefully, one day, we can help bring answers to their loved ones. Call it the missing white woman search syndrome. (laughs) If there's a missing white woman, we're gonna cover that every day. Black kids stay on the news cycle for about a day, maybe, and then they fall off the news cycle. An epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Indigenous women face a murder rate six times the national average. 